Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekochi, Chestokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chinookie Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot. I was born here in Calgary or in Blackfoot, McKinstis, as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act imposed status card. My I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Princhotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and non-Indigenous, there are distress lines in your centre as well. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support to the show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd love to have you subscribe uh, for podcasts. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to give a shout out to my super loyal donors. Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jana, Jenny, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Lisi, Marisa, Melissa, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tammy, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica, thank you all for your continued support. I can't tell you how much it means to me from the bottom of my heart. Uh, so today, I have been lucky enough to have a friend of mine that I uh, had met through one of the interfaith 
conversations that we have here in Calgary. And I'd love to uh, welcome you to the show, Eric. Oh, I'm glad to be here. This is awesome. So I'm excited for today. <laughs> now, Eric, you had me on your podcast and, uh, and we talked about different things. And, you know, I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your podcast. Oh, sure. So my name is Eric Freiberger, and I am the host of the Inception of Wonder podcast, where we explore the spirituality of wonder through the values of uh, uh, imagination, incarnation, and inspiration. So yeah, I grew up here in the Calgary area. Uh, my family's mostly from out east in the Hamilton area. So uh, we get lots of good political tensions and uh, lots of great talks around the dinner tables. But uh, we're thankful for Zoom now for that reason. But <laughs> yep. Yeah, but uh, yeah, for sure. And I do uh, blogging and, and podcasting here uh, for, oh, for many years. I've been blogging since 2007 and uh, podcasting for the last two years. So uh, I keep getting bugged to put the book put the book out so we'll see when it comes hopefully one day <laughs> yeah no it'd be great to have a book too uh you know i try to explain to people like i i run a book club but you know everyone has different mediums so like my husband when he said you have to have a podcast and he shoved a mic in front of me you know eventually we were like well we have to start doing youtube so that actually came after we had already had this established podcast because you just recognize that so many people um you know they get their medium and or media in different mediums so yeah. i uh, i totally understand uh, you know that constant evolution <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah change is inevitable that's what i tell people so no kidding so yes. yeah and we actually met through eye care which is uh interfaith uh calgary against racism a group and I, I'm really grateful that we met there, that's for sure, because you bring an added perspective about um, able-bodied issues as well. So um, that is something I, I really value and really treasure. And I know that ableism is something that I suffer from. <laughs> when I say suffer, I mean inflict pain on others. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I've been in a wheelchair since 1994. Uh, April 23rd, 1994 was a date of a motor vehicle accident that I was in. Oh. And so it's, uh, it's radically transformed the world that I live in. I was very athletic before. So um, I, that's not to say I'm not athletic now. I'm just athletically different. So, <laughs> I bet. But, uh, so yes, 1994 so. was when I graduated high school. So what a what a difference that had happened in in that same time frame. How old were you about that time? Oh, I was 15 years old when I was uh, in the motor vehicle accident. Mm. So um, I was actually driving, and my mother was a passenger. So uh, I had my learner's license. I was driving legally, <laughs> and uh, and it was a young man who was driving his brother's vehicle and speeding along the highway on 17th Ave between Calgary and Chestermere. And he had lost control of his vehicle as he was speeding, they say about between 130 and 160 kilometers an hour. 
and he collided with my vehicle, which pushed me into the path of an oncoming pickup truck, which struck my driver's side. And, uh, and it left, um, it left, uh, well, it, it changed a lot of lives. So I bet it did. I'm sorry. Um, Mm. I honor that you told us and shared that with us as well. And as you say that, literally, my daughter is having a sleepover in Chestermere, and I'm in Abbeydale, the community. We use that highway all the time. Every time mm. I drive it, I think, God, they need to do a better job here. And um, one of the Calgary Police Service's uh, displays that they use is a truck. like it, And it's a big truck, a big, like, you know, four-door truck that you would see anywhere in Alberta. and um, And it's just completely smashed in. And they said it right happened right along that route there as well. And um, so I'm just already talking about it. Now I want to change a road there because <laughs> it's yeah. too many lives have either been affected negatively or, or ruined forever. And I, you know, I, I, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you sharing that. For a long time, I wish they've cha- they would change that into a four lane uh, highway, particularly with the increased traffic of Chestermere's growth and Calgary's. Yeah. Um, well, and my but, daughter would used to go to that Prince of Peace there, so we travel that road. We used to travel that road quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and it it's uh, it's <laughs> that stretch of road has become such a uh, holy ground or sacred land for me in some ways. Um, when I pass by it, it's not just the place where my life was radically changed. It was also the place where uh, my mother passed away because she passed away in the accident. And she is uh, also buried in the cemetery uh, about a kilometer from our accident site in uh, in Mountain View Cemetery there. So so, uh, you know, every time we go up that road, that that part of my life is always imprinted there. And uh, as well as I know so many others. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, mm. I, I would love to know more about the after. After it happened, you, mm. you've, you know, you're mourning the loss of your, your mom and your life has changed dramatically. And I think of uh, one of the most empowering speeches I've ever heard in my entire life was actually by Kent Hare when he was getting nominated for Calgary Center and Mm. he talked about how when he has had his accident at that time he could go to the hospital and not have to have a credit card at the end of it at that time he could go to um, you know university and not have a screaming long uh, debt after and you know, it, it really, it was such a great speech. It really blew me away. And I, I've thought how much has changed uh, since that has happened to him. And, you know, and I don't know what it was like for your journey. If um, you had that same experience that you had top-notch help from the medical community. Mm. Uh, th- there was both, um, what would you say, goods and positives. Uh, definitely, I can advocate for the healthcare system. Uh, it was actually Stars Air Ambulance that flew me from the accident site to the general hospital. Mm. And I was I was a big 15-year-old. I mean, I was 6 to 215 pounds. 
it was, you know, and so th- I remember them saying afterwards, they struggled whether to take me to the children's hospital or the general hospital <laughs> at, at the time. So, and so they decided the general hospital and, and ironically, even with the speed that a helicopter can travel at, it was probably a life saving decision to take wow. me to that uh, hospital being that close. Um, I had multiple injuries. It was not just a spinal cord injury that I had. I had uh, broken ribs, uh, lung issues, uh, pretty much every limb in my body was affected. And, uh, and I actually broke my spine in two different locations. So, uh, so I'm left uh, as a incomplete quadriplegic, considered an incomplete quadriplegic. A lot of people think that with my abilities, I'm a paraplegic, but I'm actually... A, a quadriplegic. So, uh, so, and then I spent about three months in ICU with continued complications of lung issues. I can't speak enough to the ways that the respiratory uh, team at the general hospital at that time, uh, the way they cared for me, the, the times they literally saved my life. Uh, I can tell a few, a few stories. One's probably a little more serious and one's probably a little more humorous. But uh, the one time I, I went through three tracheotomy surgeries uh, at the time. Um, and uh, there, there was one time when they took the first tracheotomy out and what happened was it had healed and there was scar tissue that had formed. And I woke up in the morning and I couldn't breathe because the scar tissue was literally blocking my airway. Mm. And this respiratory technician came in and she spent the next, I think it was close to four hours, continually at my side, continually helping me to breathe until they could get me back into an operating room to, to do the tracheotomy. So, I mean, so thankful for the care they gave during that time. Uh, and the attentiveness. Now, in a, in a more humorous side, um, you know, <laughs> whether you want to call it good or not, uh, they experimented on me to help to help with my healing process. And I remember one time, one of the issues I had was my lungs would keep collapsing. So they brought me into the ICU, and and the the doctor wanted to try and use helium to try and help me breathe uh, using helium gas in in my lungs. And so he's trying to navigate the amount of helium and the way in which he puts it in my lungs to help me to breathe. And as a 15-year-old, I'm realizing I sound like Donald Duck. (laughs) This is awesome. And so I can't shut up, right? So I'm constantly speaking to whoever's in the room, the doctor, the nurse. And I'm you know, this is great. I sound like Donald Duck. And, and I remember the doctor turning to me and say, look, with all kindness, would you please shut up? We're trying to save your life. <laughs> so, that's fabulous. So, oh, that's fabulous. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the nurses there were, were fantastic too. Um, lots of, lots of great memories um, of uh, being, being paged with other patients. The general hospital was closing down at that time. Mm. And, 
And so a lot of the floors were abandoned. So we would go up to the eighth floor of the H wing, the H building, which was abandoned. And there was an, a really great outdoor deck out there. And so you could go wheel out on the deck and smoke cigarettes and get a beautiful view of the Calgary Stampede fireworks. Oh, I bet. <laughs> so we would go up there and do this. And of course, at around 12.15, 12.30, we'd be up there chatting it up. And we'd hear over the PA, would Eric Freiberger please return to the unit? It is time for bed. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And that's why they wanted to put you in the children's hospital first. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was eternally corrupted from... <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, my brother, he, he got in a jet ski accident and uh, he was, I, w- I want to say about 15. And, you know, he had brain fluid coming from his brain. It was really bad. And uh, they did send him to the um, children's hospital. And they, it, it ended up being really good for him to go there because uh, he, he was like playing pool and all this stuff. Like they had, they had that for the older teen. And so it was a lot of fun for him too. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't get air, um, ambulance. I would argue we would have needed it then, but, um, this would have been, I don't know, 1990 ish. And, uh, we didn't even have like 911 system yet in Sylvan Lake. So you had to like call, you know, 887-3333 just to get an ambulance. And then, Mm. you know, and actually my dad, he came from the house, went down to the lake and had to tell the ambulance how to get to Red Deer. Uh, Red Deer Hospital at the time because they didn't even have that so like I I always wonder you know if it was any other kid other than a native looking kid if he would have got a you know a helicopter ride but uh, my father-in-law got a helicopter ride and he was a huge advocate for uh, our our healthcare system because of it as well so yeah yeah Uh, I think Ironically, I probably was given the flight for stars because they happened to be in the area. Uh, I remember we were actually, my mother and I were moving to Strathmore Mm. and we were having lunch there and stars or ambulance flew over top. Now I, at the time, wanted to be a pilot. Uh, I was in air cadets and had flown Cessnas and uh, and had dreams of flying a British Aerospace Sea Harrier. That was my dream plane. Mm. And the one flight I had never really taken was in a helicopter, and I had I had dreamed of that. And uh, and I remember my mother commenting that lunch to our friends that Eric's always wanted to fly in a helicopter, and uh, and it was uh, ironic that Stars Air Ambulance happened to be there and. It was hours later I took that first flight. So wow, um, you know, every time we see airs in the sky, we pray every time. And uh, so as soon as you said that, I was like, wow, that's that's one of those moments that you don't forget afterwards. And that mm. I guess that would have been one of the last times you had your din- had dinner with your mom too. So that's a super special moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the, like, I want to talk to you about able-bodied issues everywhere. I mean, 
now that I'm aware of it, then I like I'm that idiot who is just, you know, <laughs> no concept of how inaccessible um, buildings are and, and such. And I had a well, I, I've been lucky enough to to follow some folks who who are really strong advocates for for, you know, able bodied um I, I don't know what's the temporary able-bodyism <laughs> yeah. where, where they'll talk of it and call it out and say, look, this new library doesn't even have proper, um, you know, wheelchair accessible um, capabilities here for, for all of us. So, you know, mm -hmm. what, what's it like being you? What's a day in a life like for you? Yeah. You know, uh, building off of our, our little beginning there of the story, when I when I left the hospital, I, I tell a lot of people, when when you talk about rehabilitation for spinal cord injuries, mm -hmm. it, it never really truly starts until after you leave the hospital. Mm. Uh, and when I left the hospital, I moved in with my stepdad at the time, and it was into a small apartment that was across the street from Chinook Mall. It was not accessible at all. Um, I had to squeeze through doorways. It was a, to this day, I, I cannot stand um, galley kitchens because it was a galley kitchen. You cannot move around. It was just not a good situation. And the availability of accessible housing, even to this day, is extremely uh, limited. Uh, a lot of people are ending up just sitting in hospital rooms, literally, waiting to try and find a place that's accessible for them to get into. Uh, I took part in, a, in a, uh, a group discussion not too long ago about inclusive design. Mm. That if we would just design homes and buildings around those who are on the marginalized edges of society that everyone would benefit. You know, I, my, my wife, I should mention, my wife is also in a wheelchair. Mm. And her accident was actually before mine. She was in a motor vehicle accident as well in 92. And we met in a group home afterwards. But we built our home in 99, and we put an elevator into the house. Mm. And at the time, we were told that by putting a $20,000 elevator into our house would be uh, a deterrent to resale value. A deterrent to resale value. Now today, now today we're finding out that more and more builders are being asked to put elevators into houses all yep. the time. Yep. Because... People are wanting to use, you know, you can, you can Google the term, but age at home. They want the home to be accessible for when they no longer have the physical abilities they have today. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think about that back then that, you know, we still, even today, we're still struggling to get those accessible homes on the on, uh, availability list. And, uh, and we need to do better in our, in our designs that way yeah absolutely. in the residential sense now in the social sense too i would advocate for that because uh apart from covid and the situations we're in with covid um it's nice to have people come and visit us in our home we 
we had a house church for, for 10 years. And before that, we had constant social gatherings in our home. But it's always nice to be invited to someone else's house. And, and there were times, I remember in, in the mid-90s, when my wife and I would, would go and visit people. And the only way we could see them was in the summer because we'd be able to get in the backyard. Or if they were willing to literally take the hinges off their front doors, take the doors off and carry us into the house. So, so you know, if we had that inclusive design more, more present in our communities, it creates not only a, a um, better availability for those who face those issues to find a home to live in, but also a social, uh, social setting which we can uh, flourish in together amidst our physical diversities. Yes, physical di- diversity. What a beautiful term! Thank you for that terminology. I'm going to try to use that more often. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love that. Good. And right now, um, I couldn't invite you over to my house right now mm-hmm. because, uh, well, I actually don't know if you could fit through the door. And I don't know if I could, well, I know there's no ramp. Um, even in our backyard, like if we were to open the gate and wheel you in the back, I mean, it's not great for wheels at this point in time. It's not like the worst, but I mean, I could I could invite you to the back gate and to the backyard and have a barbecue. That I could do. But mm-hmm. when you have to use the washroom, then, you know, we have that added issue. So, you know, that's such a great example of, you know, if we're all redoing our patios or something like that, just make them wheelchair accessible to begin with. And then that way, you know, we're helping ourselves, but we're also being more accessible for our friends that we want to have over. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and you can think of not even, not just the, the, the physical ramifications that are there, but how about the emotional and the, the sense of well-being that's there when you mentioned about the washroom. So, you know, as a person in a wheelchair, I go to a friend's house and I spend a few hours. Everyone else is having a great time and you want to hang around, but sorry, I got to go guys. And they're, well, what's, what, why do you have to go? Well, I mean, you really want me to spell it out for you. I've had about three beer and <laughs> I need to find it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't think you want me going behind the bushes over there either. So, right. You know. So there's there's that emotional and uh, uh, psychological side of it too. Yeah, that's not much fun. Um, I have a girlfriend of mine, and uh, I won't name her, but she definitely it was her birthday, so I called her, and she was having. Um, an, I, I guess she had a near life experience happened about a year and a half ago and now she can't go anywhere she doesn't want to go camping or anything unless she's at home by a bathroom and um you know like that just changes everything right if she wants to have somebody over or if she wants to go somewhere and um she was telling me that one of her one of her friends in her circle now that she's gone through this is that uh the scariest part is on the c train when the when the gates close because then you're committed and you have to know for sure wherever you're going, where the bathrooms are. And I, you know, and why I care about this now is because I had my daughter. And when I got, when I was pregnant, I was shocked to how many people would uh, say no to a person who was pregnant 
to use the washroom, even though there's a bylaw that says you're not supposed to. Um, and then when I had my daughter and I had a stroller, I was shocked of how, you know, a lot of the blocks have half sidewalks. Most of them, people don't clear them. And then there's the added component of they age and they're not, you know, stable and not really accessible. So half the time I was taking my daughter in her stroller in the middle of the road because the road, the um, half of the sidewalk that was available wasn't even really usable. And, um, and I've always, since that moment happened, I just can't imagine what it's like just trying to survive in this city, considering how much snowfall we get in a regular day, you know, in the winter, and then how, you know, people don't seem to care about clearing it. Hmm. Yeah, Canadian winters. <laughs> uh, we talk often about that, wishing we could go south. <laughs> I bet. Uh, it, I, I know that clearing snow is not an easy thing to do. I mean, the cold of winter is hard to get around as it is, stiff bones and, and aging bodies. Yeah. Um, navigating the snow is, is not fun either. So, um, yeah. You know, I want to touch a bit on something else too, and that's the idea that sometimes we design things according to regulated, uh, accessible uh, settings but we decide to make these great uh, creative um, cool looking designs, but not really thinking about how they act functionally. I remember going into a restaurant uh, in the North end of town and I, I stepped into, uh, into the washroom and and they had done this really neat little design. And on the one hand, I thought, this is kind of weird and cool. But after I had finished doing my thing, I'm looking around for where, where you flush, flush the toilet. And I can't find this thing. And I'm like looking all over the tank. What's going on here? And then I notice on the floor that they have this neat little button on the floor so that you don't have to use your hands. You can just step on it. And, and it, it flushes. And on one hand, I'm, I'm kind of like, wow, that's kind of cool and different. And the other end, I'm thinking, so now you want me to bend over and, <laughs> and push that with my hand because I can't step on it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, so, that's, that's really clever that we do that. Um, it's <laughs> such a good idea in theory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly and most people will go into those situations and and think oh this is very cool and 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 think that you know they're going to recommend it to everybody you got to go see this this washroom but on the other hand they don't think about that one friend who's in a wheelchair yep. who's now stuck in a predicament <laughs> yep um yeah. another wonderful um revelation i had on my ableism was the other day there was a, a protest it was a black lives matter protest and the folks had brought in somebody uh, to do american sign language and i was shocked at how i just naturally didn't include them in the shot when it was so easy to include them in the shot to begin with and it was a video so people who were watching literally could watch the the person if they wanted to and I, I just couldn't believe all of these times, how many protests I've had where I've never included American Sign Language. Um, you know, just such simple blind spots that uh, I have, but 
and that's probably the worst ableist language to use. <laughs> mm. My blind spot, come on, you're, you can see, you know, the ableist language, even when talking about ableism. <laughs> what a Ugh. nerd. So I apologize for that, but that's a bigger picture that, you know, we, we need to do better. We just need to do better in so many ways. And I, yeah. I can't believe how blind I've been to, to that uh, privilege, I should say can't believe yeah. that able-bodied privilege that I've, I've had. Um, and what about your, your, uh, your road down spirituality? Was that something that happened um, shortly after your accident or shortly after the collision? Or was it something that's kind of happened at a certain stage in your life? Hmm. So I grew up in the church. Um, my mother was a musician played guitar and played in a lot of uh, most most all of her music was worship music and she would play in worship bands in the anglican church uh, i was baptized as a catholic when i was infant most of my family out east are catholics mm. and uh, <laughs> a funny story my my uncle is uh, um a i want to say a reverend in the in the Catholic Church, and when I graduated with my theology degree, I remember him writing a letter to me stating that he was so thankful I was continuing in the tradition of our family, as five generations had gone into the priesthood, and he was glad my generation was continuing that. And I was thinking, I'm not stepping into the Catholic priesthood, Uncle, because I am very happily married. So <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so, so I grew up in the church, but uh, there wasn't, it was, it was a great social community to be in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I wouldn't say that I had that spiritual awakening per se. Um, it was, I went to church because my parents told me to go to church. <laughs> and I was this foul mouthed and, 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 uh, conniving in my mind during the week as possible as any other uh, young child or teenager was. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So when my accident happened, um, I, I, I had left the church pretty, pretty soon after that. I had gone a few times with my stepdad, but there was real no gravity towards it. Um, it wasn't until later that I got involved with martial art communities. And uh, um, as I mentioned before, I was very athletic before my accident. And I was trying to stay in touch with that passion of mine, being involved with sports and activities. And as I got heavily involved with the martial art community, I was being impressed upon by their, their philosophies, a lot of it Buddhist and uh, and the meditative practices of buddhism mm. and uh my uh my girlfriend at the time uh invited me to her church the four uh four square full gospel church and so i would go to the four square full gospel church and i would hear the uh sermons uh, and i would be confronted with this question of 
uh, what, uh, what is the spirituality that I grew up with? Who is this God that I grew up with? And who, where is he today? And, uh, and why, how does it relate to where I am in the sense of, of the meditation practices and so on? So I would spend hours. Now, this is funny. Uh, if you have Christian listeners, uh, they're going to, they're going to think I'm a heretic here, but, <laughs> but I would spend hours sitting out in the deck uh, in a, in a dark deck uh, in the group home I was in smoking cigarettes and talking with God and just telling them about everything. And, you know, you know, the thoughts that I was dealing with, the issues of being in a wheelchair, the questions of my future, and uh, and I would just talk with him there. And then it was later that my girlfriend and I got married, and and she's now my wife, and we moved down to the south here, and to our home. And I was practicing meditative prayer, and I began incorporating meditative prayer. And and there was this uh, moment where I had a vision, and there was. You're okay if I share share this uh, vision with you, I hope. <laughs> I'd be honored to hear it, actually. Thank you. Okay, sure. So, so the meditative practices teach you that you are to empty yourself completely. And so I was in the basement of our home, and I was practicing this. I am, I am void of any sense of purpose or meaning. I am emptying myself of all that ego tells me to be. And in the midst of that, I had this vision of being set in a tall grass field and it was surrounded by trees and I could hear the wind rush, rush, uh, I could hear the wind rustling through the tall grasses, through the tree branches. And I felt very transparent. I felt very much like there was nothing to my sense of being. And yet I felt this overwhelming sense that I was not alone, that there was a, another presence there. And as this wind rushed around me, I remembered the stories of my childhood of where Moses asked to see God in, in the desert. And I said, if there is a presence here, and if God, you truly exist, then as Moses did, I want to see you. I want to know that you're real. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment that that wind passed right through me. Wow. And it was, it was a piercing sense that I am totally nothing and absolutely transparent. And yet the significance is, is that this presence knows me and loves me. And I heard a voice that said, be still and know that I am God. And I will never forget that moment. Uh, I, I spend, well, even to this day, I desire for that moment again. And I seek after it uh, all the time. So that, that is, in the words of my podcast, that was the inception of wonder uh, in, in my being, in my life. So, um, and there was radical transformations that came out of that experience. 
Um, and it set me on a journey that brought me to, to where I am today. So it also revealed a lot of things in my past that I had not seen that were there, uh, that re that revealed to me that, yes, I grew up in the church. I was not a spiritual, uh, person. I did not have that spiritual connection, mm -hmm. but the spirit was still present. There was still a sense of divine. There was still a sense of wonder. There was still a sense of God's presence through that, through that time. So that, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I know for some people, like sometimes it takes a tragedy in order to um, have that connection, but at the same time, sometimes a tragedy ends up um, distancing people from the church as well, right? Because it takes a while to go through that whole process of understanding death and understanding, you know, why things happen the way they happen and, and moving forward. So, well, you know, we we're talking about ableism here. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the spiritual births that take place in, in our lives in past, a lot of the spiritual uh, greats in our history, come to that spiritual awareness through tragedy, through remarkable physical and, and spiritual transformation. Uh, in the Christian circles, we talk about Paul, and we talk about his experience on the road to Damascus. Now, sadly, in tradition, we often refer to Paul as this great and wonderful, amazing uh, guy whose life was transformed, and he became nothing but a great uh, uh, apostle. But what we don't acknowledge is, is when he was struck on the road to Damascus with the presence of Jesus in his life, he was blinded. Scales formed on his eyes, it says, and he was blinded for weeks afterwards. It wasn't until later that those scales fell off and he had new sight upon the world. He lived for weeks blind. And later in life, it's considered that he had a thorn in the side. He, he speaks often in his letters. He had a thorn in his side. And there's a lot of speculation to what that was, but one of them was that he, as he grew older, grew blind again. And so nah. he went, yeah, yeah. So he was, he was blind in his later life. Yeah. And that was his thorn, so... <laughs> No, yeah. I, I, I'm all here for it. I, I love hearing what folks interpret as uh, in, in, their, in their walk, in their spiritual walk. So I appreciate you trying to uh, encapsulate that for us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, what are some upcoming projects that you have? Um, so obviously, do you, you have a podcast? Do you uh, release it once a month? Or how does that look? Yeah. Um, so... The inception of wonder is is always a passion of mine. Uh, I started, you know, blogging in 2007, as I said, and I write about all sorts of matter. But really, I just want to see the spiritual awareness in our daily life, that our walk of uh, of being in the presence of God and in the midst of what it means to be in a divine uh, reality is part of daily activity. I, I actually just read uh, a great article on the, <laughs> the history of toilet paper and Roman Empire. <laughs> and I don't, 
I won't go into a lot of the details, but the reality was, was I was thinking about the fact that this is the time period of Jesus. And if Jesus had this problem, we need to recognize that even those moments in, in, in Roman bathrooms were divine moments with the presence of Jesus. And, and we need to walk through that mess. St. Francis, I think, said that uh, scrubbing toilets was the, the uh, uh, closest he ever felt with God. And so, you know, we need to take every moment as an opportunity for that. So the inception of wonder uh, explores uh, through imagination, where we're learning, where we're, uh, uh, where we're, um, oh, shucks. No, it's slipping my mind. Where we listen, where we learn, and where we live. Mm. And so I think it's important that first and foremost, we need to be listening to the, to the community and to the sense of place, the sense of who we are, and the sense of the people that are placed around us. And we need to be learning from those experiences. And we need to be living into uh, those realities. And then, you know, there's the incarnational aspect that the, the word became flesh. And so we need to realize that that, that living is becoming part of who we are. Mm-hmm. And so how are we, how are we incarnating that sense of wonder into uh, the community around us? How are we incarnating uh, the reconciliation, the, the acts of uh, uh uh, oh shucks! Yeah, how are we? How are we seeking to be made in the human image that we are meant to be in? Mm-hmm. But also in the inspiration, how are we inspiring others to grow in their sense of wonder and in their sense of God's presence in their life? So mm, I love that. I uh, talk about indigenous issues and you know i always talk about you know the historical trauma and the current day trauma from uh policies but my bigger goal always is seeing people thrive i want to see people be authentically themselves and then live a authentic life that they thrive in that they get to be themselves and like uh, today you know if i walk around in a ribbon skirt i may not be treated as well as if i didn't Right, so we, we want to have a world of, of equality and kindness and, and love, but bigger than that, I want um, you know for our two spirit folks to feel comfortable being who they are out in public and, and for all people to be you know thriving in this world, um, you know getting that equal pay, but also you know enjoying their life, and um, you know I I really get that sense from you where it's that inspiration of not just walking down your road of of spirituality but you know enjoying that road along the way and and enjoying life and as you said inspire others as we go walk this path because um you know life really is short and that bigger picture that we need to enjoy the little time that we have on this earth and you know 80 years goes by quick (laughs) if we're lucky if we're blessed enough to live that long right so um and I'm finding that, especially with my daughter, uh, how quickly 13 years have gone by already. And, you know, I don't know what the future is going to look like, but 
13 years from now could look very different for me. And I hope that it, it'll be a fun, fun ride as we do it. You know, something that we all get to enjoy together and not apart. You know, for me, I need to make accommodations immediately in my life so that I could have you over for coffee whenever you want. You and your <laughs> wife, you know, that, that's, that's the whole thing. So, so I just hope, you know, like I, I really take uh, what you say, um, in a bigger picture of I have a responsibility now and, and I benefit from it, frankly, then I get to have you, your wife over, but I also am prepared for anybody else who might want to come over and, and, uh, you know, live that full, full life together and uh, get to meet your wife, those things like that, that matters to me. So I hope you know how this conversation and the short period of time we've had has already inspired me in so many ways. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. 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 So is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today? Uh, No, it's just, it's, I don't know. It's an honor to be on the show with you. It's a, it's a great chance to uh, talk a bit about some of the ableist uh, issues that are out there. You know, I, I, I know this is kind of backtracking a bit, but I'd like to talk a bit about um, some of the perceptions we have of people with disabilities um, I know recently there's been a thing in the news about uh, a young man named Lucas, uh, in, uh, who entered the, uh, Shaughnessy Walmart and had a, uh, an aid dog with him. Mm. And he was confronted by a security guard there and was, uh, told that he was not allowed to bring this dog in. Now, Lucas his struggles with a head injury following a car accident several years ago, and as such has troubles walking. So he was in a, an electric wheelchair and uh, is nonverbal. So he communicates through his phone and has an aid dog with him. Now, the security guard uh, confronted him tried to tell him that he had to produce a license for this dog and that he was not allowed to bring them in. And they harassed him throughout the store. Uh, At one point, even trying to grab the leash of the dog and take the dog away from him. Uh, It it was just an unbelievable um, act that I think was uh, motivated not just by the ableism of of uh, perceiving his, or I should say misperceiving his physical abilities, but also misperceiving his mental abilities. As I spoke to my wife, by the act of trying to grab his leash, they're basically saying he's incompetent to make the decisions of how he is to treat his, his aid dog. And, and it annoyed me because I too have experienced that. As a person in a wheelchair, uh, a lot of times people perceive if you are in a wheelchair, you have a mental disability too. I remember people coming up to me and speaking to me in a very slow pattern. My name is so-and-so. What is your name? I just look at them and I shake my hand. My name is Eric. Do you have a speech impediment? Because I do not. (laughs) But I'm infuriated by the story you just told me. Holy hell, I'm so angry right now hearing this. Um, yeah. Like, okay, here's able-bodied Michelle thinking she's 
find a man in a wheelchair with a dog and I'm going to make them, you know, show me some license. I, I can't even tell you how infuriating that is for me as a, as an able-bodied person. I mean, it's very clear he need this person needs a dog. It's mm-hmm. very, very clear. And if they're coming into the mall, the only thing that my job is, is to ask for, do you need any assistance? Are you finding any barriers? That's my job. Not create new ones. <laughs> Not create yeah. new barriers. Holy. Yeah. And it was very obvious. I mean, Lucas's uh, assistance dog had the uh, the jacket that identified uh, the dog as an, an aid dog. Uh, there's no need for for demanding licenses or following him around the store while he did his shopping and such. So I yeah. live at hearing that. Holy. Um, yeah. So what what are the next steps for for this fella? How do we um, aid, or is that like does he have a GoFundMe going on or anything like that? Well, he's been in media. Uh, he's had the media telling his story. And there's an investigation being done apparently internally. Okay. Uh, I would love to see greater education brought there. Um, we need to see that uh, uh, these stories are told and that there's an awareness too. I mean, even in the hiring function, we need to change our the way we hire and employ people with disabilities. I, <laughs> as, a, as a person with a disability, I have managed to to put myself through education. I have two degrees, you know, that I've studied for. And yet I constantly feel like those who are in wheelchairs are perceived as being designated to roles of uh, working in Walmart uh, as greeters or or in low income. low income jobs. They're not... Uh, they're not necessarily uh, going to be hired for greater positions, no matter what education they have. And we need to recognize that those people have those. In fact, I just read a thing online the other day. Uh, Val Kilmore uh, is, uh, is struggling with cancer and has a tracheotomy that was put in place. And he just did a movie with his daughter and they did an interview on TV where his daughter was advocating that we need to see actors of varying abilities, yep. uh, no matter the struggles that they have, because they have an incredible impact to have on the film industry and, and on acting. So I hear a lot of that, especially when it comes to um, LGBTQ2 plus roles. Like, so for example, rather than you know getting a trans person to play a trans role, they will get, you know, Val Kilmore, or Tom Cruise, or somebody else to play that role, and um, you know, and I, I understand the, you know, brand name recognition, but at the same time, um, just as we know Ellen as the lesbian of Hollywood, we should know other trans names, and and there should be more Ellens, right? Obviously, today Ellen's probably not doing too good in the media, so uh, maybe a bad example, but you know, um, that bigger picture that there's that we need to start having a trans Brad Pitt. We need to have, you know, a, roles that, uh, and, and celebrity that are just as famous as a Tom Cruise or somebody else. And, um, 
And, you know, I always think of Kent Hare when I think of uh, kind of a, you know, celebrity in a, in a wheelchair. But I mean, <laughs> that's a politician. That's not the same as, uh, I don't know, a Tom Cruise, frankly. So not that he couldn't be one <laughs> if he chose. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I appreciate you bringing in that perspective as well. One, I didn't know Val Kilmore had cancer and that he was doing something like that with his daughter. But yeah, I think it's such a, a brilliant point to make because as Indigenous people, we talk about uh, media representation and media misrepresentation on a regular basis. And I, I couldn't agree more. We need uh, better media when it comes to folks with uh, that are in a wheelchair because um, I've even heard that using that term disability isn't necessarily the right terminology to use because um, you know, you're just a person in a wheelchair, not, uh, you know, person like oh, you said shucks. with a mental def default or something, you know? Yeah, no, this is actually, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, since I was young, I've always talked about the fact that I do not like the word disability. Mm. I realize that there's going to be moments out there that I'm going to have to use the word, yes, I am disabled. Um, but in the connotation and the fact that that's always an interpretive word, people are going to take that word and create their own opinions of what it means when they look at me, when they look at a person in a wheelchair. Yeah. They're going to see it as he or she is not able to do certain things. He's not able to walk. He's not... <laughs> But the reality is, is I'm not restricted from accomplishing or being able to do anything I put my mind to or want to, including walking. There are robotic aids out there that if I so choose, I can enable myself to, to walk according to the, the perceived uh, perception of what that is. Um, so I'm not restricted from being able to do any physical or anything that that I choose. Uh, there's a great movie out there about a guy who dreamed of going along the El Camino and doing the El Camino walk. Now this is a spiritual pilgrimage and and rooted in deep tradition and history. Well it was a friend that came alongside him and said look Let's do it together. And he pushed his friend in a wheelchair all along the El Camino, and they made a movie about it. Uh, there's nothing that, that stops us. So, so I've always struggled with, you know, how can we reframe this yeah. so that I'm not a person with a disability. I'm yeah. a person with a physical challenge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, temporarily abled body was such a great expression I once heard about folks like me who, you know, take for what we have for granted, frankly. But finding the right terminology to try to talk about these issues so that um, bias against your employment, bias against your, you know, whatever sport you want to participate in, like there shouldn't be that. Like we should be inclusive to everybody so that that way we can all enjoy each other and create those friendships and create that, you know, social well-being that we all deserve and, and frankly should have. So I, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I appreciate you, you kind of dissecting that a bit because um, I don't need to be the person talking about that. <laughs> you do. And I need to amplify your voice while you do it. So 
Sure. Yeah. 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 So thank you. All right. So I have this, um, the last part that I do here, I kind of talk about, um, I, I'm a big person when it comes to solutions. Uh, right. So in my podcast, I'm constantly talking about racism and constantly talking about uh, the issue that we have where, you know, folks know, okay, here are the problems. What are the solutions? So it's kind of the um, end part that I do. And I, I just invite you and encourage you to participate in as I speak about this, because, um, you know, so, for example, I'm going to talk about Indigenous issues and, and the solutions. But, you know, uh, for me, I I would happily and I see the whole just having you on that I need to talk about reports that talk about, um, you know, being more inclusive to folks with disabilities because we, we aren't. Bottom line is that we're not. And I mean, when I talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and one of the calls to action about Jordan's principle, yeah, that's encompassing that, but there's, there must be more reports that are more inclusive to, or to um, folks with disabilities that I'm probably not going to list. So I just encourage you to, um, to uh, you know, add a few as you hear, you know, an, an opportunity that sounds like, yeah, we could probably talk about this report here or this report there because um, when I ran for municipal, a big issue for me was that um, conversation of disability and how we're not really inclusive to, to all. So I'd love to hear you as I, as I do my closing. Um, if you see a, a place that we could be talking about different reports that are very specific to, um, you know, being more wheelchair inclusive or, or just bias against in, uh, folks that with any type of disability that need to be included. So, um, so I invite you to, uh, to chime in as I, as I speak, if you see a, a role to talk about, uh, talk about it from your point of view with your lens. Mm, sure. Awesome. And thanks again for being on my show. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is good. Awesome. Well, Indigenous have been talking about our issues and sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized people in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, AISH here in Alberta, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendation of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the political, justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they do not understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have no business running. This should be understood by all parties and local politicians, community organizations, sports, churches, uh, all the clubs. A really great article that I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. I want to continue by putting cultural safety into action so that you can create a safer space for 
Indigenous, people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 to speak. Look at it as first aid for marginalization. First, you have to do something. Having good intentions is not enough. You have to take action to make change. You have to speak out against racism. You have to ask questions with those more with more understanding. You have to find allies and create a support system for yourself to help you advocate for culturally safe approaches. You have to take responsibility for your own learning, like I'm trying to do now here with Eric. Read, reflect, and ask questions. Do not expect this learning to come from those who are marginalized. And take time for self-reflection. Beware of your own assumptions and biases. Question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes. And a great example of me taking some time for self-reflection is acknowledging when I was talking to Eric about disabilities, I was using terminology like blind spot. You know, that's a bias assumption that I need to do some uh, self-reflection on and find better terminology so that I don't sound like such an ableist jerk. Uh, four, commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding um, power, oppression, the legacy of racism, colonialism is an ongoing and difficult task. And I want to thank heretohelp.bc.ca for their what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it for the, for the uh, steps I just gave. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism. Um, GenderEquityTools.org has a really great um, write-up about what is internalized racism. If you Google it, you will find more um, information about why it is we have these crabs in a bucket mentality. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. They have a great list about what to do when you visit or when you witness public instances of racist, anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans or other form of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment and using these tips on how to um, intervene so safety of everybody is involved and let, let's just bring up this moment that Eric had taught us about what it's like to be in a wheelchair and have a service dog and it was the security that was causing the problem um, you know so as a person who would have been walking by this is you I want you to think about what you are witnessing. Uh, make your presence known. If possible, make eye contact with the person being harassed and ask them if they want support. So here we have an incidence where, you know, you're witnessing this, you're seeing this man communicates with um, a digital piece, you know, be conscious of that and see, okay, so this is how he communicates. So, you know, making eye contact, being there, um, being um, with that person already is is helping them and as I've told you record 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 It is much easier to get consent to put that film up or, or to give that to that person later than it is to wish you had Recorded it to begin with take cues from the person being harassed um, Is that person engaging with the harasser or not? So if you're literally hearing somebody saying you know, this is my dog, this is how I communicate. This might be a good time for you to, in, you know, intervene and let them know, would you like me to walk with you over here, uh, move to another train car? Or in this case, you know, do you want to uh, continue to be in this, in this mall? Ask them those questions. Do you want for him to leave you alone? Follow their lead. Notice, 
if the person being harassed is resisting in their own way and honor that. Uh, we don't need to tone police folks being harassed. So in this case, ableist person seeing this situation, I don't need to tell this person how to uh, speak or, or how to behave. Uh, follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over and see if they need anything. This is where I encourage people to give people their card because when you're in that moment of being targeted, you're embarrassed and you probably don't want to really discuss these things. So just giving somebody your card really validates their experience. And if at a later time they decide they're going to have an internal investigation or whichever, you've already aided this person by giving them your information. But do what you both have to do to keep safe. Assess your surroundings. There's, are there other people you can pull in? Is working as a team a good idea? And can you and the person being harassed move to a safer space? Don't call the police. For many communities experiencing harassment right now, uh, the police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. Eric, it's funny as I say this right now, this was like I put this together two years ago long before this Black Lives Matter movement uh, resurfaced just recently. So when I say this, to me, it's kind of funny saying it when it's so painfully clear with what's in the media. But I think for a lot of folks, they may not really understand the issue. So this may be the first time they're understanding. It is the security guard in the mall that is supposed to protect them that is actually harassing those with, um, you know, those with a disability or those who are Arab, Muslim, Black, queer, trans, indigenous, immigrants, you know, that's, that's our reality. Don't so I'm reminded of something Desmond Tutu said in his book, uh, No Future Without Forgiveness. And he speaks about the African term Ubuntu. Ubuntu is very difficult to render into a Western language. It speaks of the very essence of being human. When we want to give high praise to someone, we say, you Nabuntu. I know I'm horrible at pronouncing that. <laughs> hey, so and so has Ubuntu. Then you are generous, you are hospitable, you are friendly and caring and compassionate. You share what you have. It is to say, my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. We say a person is a person through other persons. It is not I think, therefore I am. It says rather I am human because I belong. I participate, I share. A person with Ubuntu is open to available, open and available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good, for he or she has a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed or treated as if they were less than who they are. Mm. I, I think when you were talking there, I think the greatest thing is that yes, we ought to be witnesses and, and speakers of the stories around us. We have to take our cameras out and film and, and, and make sure people see not only, not only the good things that are out there, but also the things that need to change. Now, notice I didn't say the bad things. I said the things that need to change. 
because we're not calling people down. We're not judging them. We're not, we're not condemning them. We're calling for transformation in our community. Mm. I want to tell you a story about one of the things that we deal with often when it, in a very practical sense. And it's a sense that uh, we have a vehicle with us and in, in our, our vehicle has a wheelchair lift in the side of the van. Now, often we take our van and we try and find appropriate parking spaces for it where we can pull into a parking stall and drop the lift down onto a sidewalk or onto an island that we can get off of or something. But most often we end up having to double park in a parking space. Even the accessible stalls are maybe not necessarily quite wide enough, and so we'll double park. But we're constantly afraid of our vehicle being damaged or or inappropriately photographed and put on a public site with condemning words. You know, I've heard many people say, let's take a picture of that so-and-so jerk with their license plate showing and post it on to Facebook or whatever social media condemning them. That becomes a threat upon my and my wife's life because people can identify our van and damage that van or judge us because we're those evil double parkers, not paying attention to the fact that we have a lip there. We have had everything from lipstick written notes on our windshields and on our windows, uh, telling us to learn how to park, to key marks on the side of our van, to letters being left under our windshield wipers that people like us should have our tires slashed. I remember one time being parked in front of a grocery store and I was sitting there and as I mentioned my wife who's in a wheelchair got out of the van and I left the lift down on the sidewalk and as I often do I sat in the van and waited and she went into the garage or into the grocery store and while I was there a lady came up and said hi how are you doing I said I'm doing great and she says how come you're sitting here double parked like this and you know, you're, you're inappropriately parked like this. Can you not learn how to park properly and straight in here? The lift is sitting right there in front of me. I pointed to the lift. I said, I have a wheelchair lift here and I am in a wheelchair who she's actually looking at at this time. And I said, this is why we park like this so that no one's able to come in beside. And then we're in, unable to get into back into our vehicle. She goes, oh, oh, okay. But you're in the vehicle right now. I said, yes, my wife went into the wheelchair, or my wife went into the grocery store to get some groceries. Oh, so you're here, but your wife is in the store. Well, your wife isn't in a wheelchair, so how come she can't, you know, just, why can't you park straight in and she can't get into the vehicle? And I had to stop her again, and I said, no, my wife is in a wheelchair. And that is why we're parked like this. And that's why the lift is down, waiting for her to return. And of course, she was very embarrassed and, and walked away. But some of the assumptions that we keep, we need to be careful not only that we're not uh, creating prejudicial ableist moments and, and trying to, you know, and wrongfully assuming the uh, the abilities or the inabilities of a person. But we also need to be careful in the way that we judge and the ways that we approach these issues. And instead of making statements of judgment, 
ask ask deep and personal questions. Ask the questions of wanting to know a person in as Desmond Tutu points out, in the spirit of Ubuntu, that we are one and the same. We are sharing together. I am human because you are human. Yes, well, thank you for sharing that about uh, this discrimination that you face, especially with your parking. And I hope that, you know, folks hear the message of what you're saying with that bigger picture that, you know, when we engage in these moments where we see oppression happening from, you know, that power dynamic, that we, we try to come in with that good heart and speak in, in good ways while, you know, doing the job that needs to be done, which is allowing a person who's being targeted that opportunity to, you know, be empowered in their moment and aid in that moment and not take away from that moment as well. And I, that's what I heard when you talked about, you know, the judgment about how we come into these situations that the, you know, I, when I uh, talk about solutions, you know, it is about de-escalation. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, your terminology of judgment is a great example where, you know, you can come in, you know, guns a blazing like I would normally do, um, <laughs> or you can use, you know, de-escalation um, techniques. And that is what I'm learning, which is why, of course, I'm trying to pass it on to others. And back to what Eric was saying about that judgment, that just by using judgmental tones and judgmental statements, that escalates the situation. And we're trying to do the opposite where we don't escalate the situation. So I, I definitely take heed in what you said, and I appreciate you, uh, you, you telling your story as well as talking about that bigger picture of judgment. So thank you. Yeah. 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 So um, don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person to safety and not uh, incite further violence from the attacker. Don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It approves. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support with your body. But like Eric said, you know, judgment, uh, judgmental statements does not help uh, de-escalate the situation and teach your kids about accountability in a positive way because they are the ones that are learning this behavior from somewhere. If you're experiencing emotional distress or want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion. I sure want to tell us theirs by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, our rights. the constant uh, lack of health care that we get because of the bias and racism within the system, typical microaggressions, typical, you know, uh, folks dealing with internalized racism, folks who are gatekeepers who survive off the status quo, or people who are so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard. 
Thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family roots and stepping up to teach me to be a proud Calgarian. And just through her, I am a second generation proud Calgarian. And thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, and my uh, the father of our child down um, this road, this journey of the red road that he's witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child who we are blessed to learn from daily, I'm honored you chose us. You give us daily accountability to be a better, stronger person. My hope, um, I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the road. Again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jana, Jenny, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, uh, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Lisi, Marisa, Melissa, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tammy, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you did one donation or had to quit for many, or I had to quit for financial reasons, please know I appreciated your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We are also on uh, YouTube where you can subscribe. And for podcasts, we're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end with a side eye to the Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful <laughs> cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for being on my show, Eric. I appreciate it. Oh, it was an honor. Thank you very much for, for allowing me to be on your show. Oh, yes. You bring a great perspective that we need to hear more often. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you.